to anyone who is a survivor of any sort of assault or abuse, please check the show notes prior to continuing this podcast episode. Uh, This is going to be triggering for a lot of people, and I want to make sure to at least give you the space to be able to decide whether or not you want to listen to this podcast episode. Last week's episode was with Dr. Lex Brown-James, and we talked a lot about how black bodies are over-sexualized, and we talked about how sexual trauma and what the healing process may look like is extremely different for marginalized communities, and we talked in detail about how it affects black women, and this podcast was... It came as a result of us uh, having that conversation. So I'm very thankful to our guest, Z, who felt comfortable enough to reach out and share her own experience. So I'm not going to give too much away. We're going to go ahead and get into it um, right away. (laughs) So um, if you haven't already, please like, rate, review, share the podcast, Something Positive for Positive People with those who need it. Um, it's a nonprofit, 501c3. So if you want to donate to helping provide support to people who need it, um, and this, this whole fundraising process has been very challenging because something positive for positive people branches into so many areas that it's not very specific to one area. So getting funding has been a bit challenging, but we did get approved to attend STD Engage, which is um, what I put together a survey for. You might have taken it already, but just figuring out what negative emotions you experienced after your positive diagnosis, if you're someone who has a positive STI diagnosis. And then the other thing was just expressing how something positive for positive people has helped you. So thanks to those responses, I got the registration fee waived, which was almost $800. Um, And I'm going to go out to Alexandria, Virginia in November. So uh, this is exciting because I get to get with a network of people who are in this space who can help uplift and provide some level of support for something positive for positive people enabling us to continue doing what we're doing also special shout out to wax so longtime supporter of the something positive for positive people podcast Healthcare is all over the news right now and not just because of the democratic primaries a couple of weeks ago john oliver and wanda sykes did a segment on last week tonight about medical bias Hannah Gatsby's new show has a healthcare tie-in too. Why? Because our system is messed up and people are finally talking about it. Waxo created the awareness campaign, hashtag we need a button, to address the bias and discrimination LGBTQ people face when interacting with the healthcare community. But it extends so much further beyond that. Please check out the content on waxo.com. That's W-A-X-O-H.com. And we all know healthcare professionals who are passionate, caring, kind, and who truly care about their patients. We all know those people, whether it's friends, partners, relatives, but somehow our system has made it okay for people to be mistreated. Maybe that's due to the lack of bedside manner and cultural sensitivity training, but the convo needs to happen. 
because too many people have stories. And again, you can check this out by following the hashtag we need a button or you can go to waxo.com for more information. Last time to check in with you. Please take care of yourself as you listen through this podcast episode. Um, and please read through the show notes and just check to see this may not be something you're ready to listen to, um, but it's important and it's important to me. It's important, obviously, to the guests, but we got to get out of this normalized dysfunction. We got to be able to speak up. We've got to be able to um, create space for people to tell us about mistreatment and and we, we got to give the language we got to give the tools resources education to people so that they can um, articulate wrongdoings and call out dysfunction welcome to something positive for positive people i'm courtney brand something positive for positive people is a podcast that features the experiences of people living with and or affected by sexually transmitted infections our guest is z and she's had herpes for 10 years now i want to make sure to provide people with a trigger warning because we recorded this podcast episode before and it wasn't as structured or neat as uh, we would both have liked it to be so we're redoing it and a lot of stuff came up that we didn't necessarily plan for to come up, but it just really went along with the story. This is just something that you want to be mindful of listening through the podcast. If you're someone who is a survivor of sexual assault, this is something that will invoke emotion out of you. As you listen to this podcast, just take care of yourself. All right, Z. So you were diagnosed with herpes at 15 years old. Did you have any type of education on herpes or did you know what it was before you contracted it? No, not really. I would see stuff, hear stuff. Everybody would say, like, you would see, like, cold sores and pimples and stuff on people. And people would make kids and make fun and say, oh, that's herpes, you got herpes, stuff like that. And you know that you can't get rid of it. I know I could get rid of it if I got it, but I didn't know anything about it. Oh, okay. So you just had basically the stigma. Stigmatic knowledge, yes. Okay. And the stigmatized knowledge of it. Did you get anything from the doctor? Did they give you a pamphlet or some information on how to manage it, or how was your? I think she gave me a little, a little pamphlet. Okay. With it, but she, it wasn't much really at all. When you were diagnosed, what hit you the hardest, especially being 15 years old? The fact that I have something that I can't get rid of, <laughs> and then at the time, of course, I'm going through an outbreak, so I'm like this. I got these nasty sores and stuff on me. Like, what am I going to do from this point? <laughs> For real, I, I got my butthole split. I got these blisters all over me. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> what am I going to do? So it was a lot, especially at 15. Mm-hmm. Was this your first interaction with any kind of an STI? It was not, actually. 
sure my age. Um, I was in the eighth grade, and as we discussed, I was sexually active very early. And with older gentlemen at the age of 12, I got chlamydia in eighth grade. How was that handled? Did you get treated? Uh, well, so my mom found out. Like, I skipped school that day, and I, at the time I was going to, to school with my cousins, and she finished on me, she told them. <laughs> but uh, when my cousin told her the backstory or the story I was telling her about why I skipped school, which was that I was with a family member that didn't exist, but my mom immediately took me to the hospital and they, you know, gave me the medicine at the hospital. Oh, so were you showing symptoms? I was showing symptoms, but I, of course, super young, didn't have any idea what was really going on with me. I had discharge and odor and all that, but I had no idea what it was from. So did you and your mom have a conversation after she took you to the doctor to get treated for this in the eighth grade? No, not really. It was one of those things. I knew she was disappointed in me, so it was kind of like yeah, we, didn't, we didn't really talk about it. She immediately got me on birth control. And that was kind of pretty much where we left it. Yeah. And um, I don't want you to think that any of the questions that I'm asking you are coming from a place of judgment at all. Obviously, there's a lot there just from you being sexually active so young and the the way that your mom handles it and the partners that you had being adults and you at these times where a minor i want to make sure that you feel safe and if at any point you know you need us to stop this pause this cut it off whatever just let me know okay i'm very concerned with the fact that uh i guess your mother's priority was for you not to get pregnant so there that's why you were given birth control after you got chlamydia assumptions but if I'm trying to put perspective to it at all given the information that I have it would just be that if we just hide the the physical stuff you can do whatever it is that you can want to do in the dark so as long as you don't get pregnant nobody will know that you're doing the things that I don't really approve of, but we're also not going to talk about these things. So it's like, you do what you want to do, but I'm going to keep from this coming to the light by you getting pregnant at a young age. Yeah. I actually heard um, kind of phrases like that a lot, like cover each other, and in Islam we don't 
uh, reveal our thoughts and stuff like that. I heard phrases like that a lot. And like, what goes on in this house stays in this house type of stuff. You know, I heard that kind of stuff a lot growing up. So it's definitely that type of mindset surrounding it. Like, it's, she didn't want me to do it, but it's like, I can't, I can't control what you do. But as long as I can cover it up as much as I can, we don't have to expose it. So it's just more of like a shame thing. You said she was disappointed in you, and so there's like this shame there of your mom just really not wanting it to get out the house. So like whatever happens in this house is gonna stay in this house. But then there's also this added layer to it, just like when you were diagnosed with herpes at 15, we ain't gonna talk about this. At 12, I don't know that there was anything that she may have been able to say, but certainly it would have been more useful to say something rather than say nothing. And whose idea was it to not talk about it? Was it yours or was it your mom's? I remember getting yelled at a lot about it. I can't give verbatims about it, but after being yelled at and scolded at about the fact that I was out having sex and skipping school, it just kind of wasn't talked about after that. It was kind of like, I reprimanded you, you know, you've been disciplined for it, and now I hope you don't go out and do it again. But it wasn't like, I don't want to talk about this anymore, Ma. Can we not talk about it? And she wasn't like, you know, we're not going to talk about this anymore. But generally speaking, a lot of stuff that we had going on at home, I would hear a lot of, this don't go outside of the house. This is in between us. This is what's going on inside the house. I think I have like a similar background, of course, not with the sexuality aspect, but just you don't gossip or tell people things that you hear your mom talking about on the phone or if they're talking shit about other relatives that stays in the house so for me to see that like this can go as deep as that as uh we aren't gonna talk at all about this thing that clearly needs to be talked about and i don't know if it would have created more of an urgency if she knew that you were having sex with adult men while you were a minor really though this is not intended to throw her under the bus there were instances where even after that like i would have guys over and and there were people would call the house and she walked in on me once with somebody and then she also picked up the phone and heard a grown man's voice while i was talking to him at another instance and i would have thought that at some point there should have been some intervention there uh, some serious intervention there, um, but there wasn't. It wasn't until I made the decision to run away, or what I thought was running away, that there was an intervention there. And I was committed for two weeks. Committed to what? What do you mean? A psychiatric hospital, a psychiatric facility. Okay. I was committed for two weeks. Actually, a week inpatient and a week outpatient. And then we went to Marxa and got a therapist and at that point was when I, there was supposed to be some intervention behind that. But that was also, I think, what also kind of put some fire under my mom to, to get me into that. Besides me running or trying to run away was when I came out about something happening to me younger as a younger child. But, you know, not really letting on about what the truth was. I lied and said something else happened to me. I think that kind of lit a fire under my mom to give me some help at that point. Now, this thing that you're referencing, was this you being molested at six years old? Yes, yes. Okay. You told her this because of 
being admitted to the psych ward? Was this something that they encouraged you to do? No. I told her prior to this, one of my cousins came out about something happening to her. She was being molested by somebody. Something in me was erupting, I guess, and I felt like I needed to say something, but I did not want to say that this particular person has been doing this to me since I was six. So I said that something else happened to me, and I didn't say that my cousin's been molesting me. She's been touching on me, doing this, this, and this, you know, all this stuff. I didn't say that. I don't know. Maybe we got into an argument or something around this same time, and I got upset, and I decided that I was going to leave. I was going to run away instead of running away like my dad came, and he picked me up and found me, and I'm venting to him. And then, you know, all of a sudden, I'm being taken to a research. I'm being taken to the psych ward and being committed for a week. Then it was counseling after that, after being forced to take Zoloft and all that stuff. Then it was, you get to talk to a therapist. You get to talk to somebody about your problems. Alright, so there's a lot more here than just the herpes conversation for sure. Definitely. And uh, you, you're, you're seeing a therapist right now, right? Mm-hmm. How long have you been seeing your therapist? About two years. Okay. And I'm going to probably continue to check in with you about this. But you're at a place where you're comfortable with sharing all these experiences, correct? Yes. All right. Dealing with the molestation at 6. Getting diagnosed with chlamydia at 12. Dating adult men that were, what did you say, 40? 20, 40, somewhere in between, I'm sure. There were multiple guys. And I'm sure in hindsight, you're probably like, oh, what what the F? But at right. any point, can you recall figuring that that was wrong? I mean, I'm sure nobody was, nobody knew to tell you, hey, this is not legal. You shouldn't be doing this. And unfortunately, your parents didn't really want to get involved with it. I don't know if they were just turning the other cheek, but that would be the first. I would have imagined that there was some kind of red flags that were going off. And it's just like, you know, it's, it's I want to equate it to like now where if we see a fight breaking out or if we see some injustice being done, the first thing everybody does is kind of just pull out their phones and like allow it to happen or think that somebody, yeah, or they think that somebody else going to step in and help or it's not their place. It's not their job. Uh, it feels like no, you just didn't have anyone tell you or maybe you didn't feel like you could trust anyone around you to tell you oh yeah this is what's going on and you didn't have anybody to tell you hey that's not normal that's not right right well I believe that it was normal I didn't think that it was anything wrong with it because mind you I'm, I grew up in the inner city I went to schools in the inner city in middle school there were girls who were pregnant you know there were girls who were um getting STDs and getting them you know going and getting taken care of it was um in eighth grade, it was school holes. It was, you know, all kind of stuff going on around me. So that that climate was the climate that I grew up in. It was I, it was normal. And then it was introduced to me prior to me even having any real knowledge about sex. The cousin that was molesting me, like, when that incident happened at the age of six, I have no idea what is going on. I just know that my cousin just told me to get down on my knees and lick her vagina. You know what I'm saying? I, I have no idea what's going on. So by the time I'm becoming sexually active or wanting to become sexually active, I'm thinking that I'm behind because it's uh, around me. 
it's so much, you know, it's pregnant girls, you know, walking around around me about to have kids in the eighth grade. I knew my mom from a religious standpoint and from what religion taught me and what she taught me about the religion. I knew I was not supposed to have sex until marriage. I knew I would be considered unclean. I might not be able to find a husband, all this stuff. I knew homosexuality was supposed to be wrong. And I, it was just so much stuff that I had going on in my mind. So I knew that according to the religion, none of this stuff was right, but it was normal because that was the behavior that I was consistently seeing. And it was the behavior that was like, it, it was embedded in me early. Just add to what you were saying and just simplify it to being, you know, you were just a product of your environment. So this was normal to you and nobody came in to say this isn't normal or I don't know. It's just I, I wonder what is there to be done. Like we always talk about how a lack of resources in certain communities, they don't help. I mean, not having these resources, not having education, poverty, just a number of things that contribute to teen pregnancies and STD rates and all of this stuff is a factor. And what you're sharing with me right now is something that's not, it's there, it's happening, and it's just not getting any kind of attention. There's no sense of urgency, you know? <laughs> no, I make jokes sometimes when I discuss this because I've openly discussed it with friends and some of the guys I was with make jokes about me. I should have gotten paid for the stuff that I did. Like, I, I basically lived the life of a child who was sex trafficked, but I was, like, doing it myself. <laughs> I basically lived the life of a child prostitute underneath everybody's noses, and I wasn't getting paid for it. I didn't have a pimp type of thing. That's the type of lifestyle that I was living, that I was in. Like I said, I make jokes that I should have got paid for it, but that's the climate. <laughs> that's that is what the environment is it sucks i remember watching the surviving r kelly documentary and it like the, watching that resonated in me so much because that is literally the mindset that people had the girls thought it was okay the girl thought that this was normal this is how it's supposed to be the others this 20 something year old dude is up here you know at this mcdonald's at the whatever or outside of the school whatever and he looking at you girl he, he got the car, he, you know, he probably out here selling drugs, got all the dope, got the money, all this stuff. He looking at you, you better get on that type of thing. It, that, it was normal from both on both ends, and the men didn't think it was anything wrong with it. It's just, it was, it's crazy. It's crazy, and I'm sure it's still probably going on today. When I grew up, I mean, I was fortunate enough to not necessarily, you know, I would say like middle class-ish. Um, we had everything we needed. I didn't get a lot of stuff that I wanted growing up. But um, in school, I remember there were teenage pregnancies, and to me, that was even normal. I didn't know of anyone contracting any STIs. We, had, we were, people were having sex, but there were condoms. Like, we had some kind of a conversation about getting condoms. And I can't, I can't even remember really being motivated by sex at all, in, like in middle school. You know, I think that was like a high school thing for me. And maybe it was because of that wider age range when hormones are raging and the people around you are now talking about sex. But like in middle school, we just wanted to play video games and play football. It was, yeah. That was it. I say all of that to ask you this. Were there any other activities for you to be involved in? Any passions at all? Like, was it just what was it that drew you to this kind of lifestyle 
on top of it just being your environment. It's like the cool thing to do. Two things. First, like I said, it was introduced to me. I was involved in activities. I was in dance for a long period of time. I don't, I don't even remember when I stopped, but I was pretty young, probably like six, seven-ish, around that same time. I think my mom may have not, she, had, she wasn't able to afford the classes at the time, so I had to stop doing that. The other thing was... By the time I started engaging in those specific behaviors, I had already, you know, been experiencing sexual activity and just not knowing what it was. And it, that particular, like, the method I used to get in touch with these guys was introduced to me by my molester. It went from one norm to another. You know, she's been touching on me, doing all this stuff to me and we've been watching porn and doing all this you know all this stuff and now we're gonna move it up the ante a little bit and move on to the next level we're gonna start talking to guys you know we're gonna start talking to guys together it was really uh, a smooth transition and it was a normalized transition it was like this is what you're supposed to do and she told me that somebody she know she knew one of our fit close supposedly family friends introduced her to it and it was just kind of like, seemed like a rite of passage. Now, at a point, I did get involved. Like, I, I played volleyball from my freshman year to my senior year. And that was after years of convincing. I played the, the same for the same team that my brother played for football. That was after some years of convincing to get me involved in something. But there was a long period of time where I wasn't involved in anything. And that's the majority of that was happening. It went from molestation to the watching porn to now talking to guys. Wasn't this like a chat line or something? Was this something that somebody was getting paid for? No, it was a chat line. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, so they, the women weren't supposed to pay, but the guys were supposed to pay. Okay, on so the phone, over the phone. So it was a phone chat line, and that did, you know, they did profit from the the line and people meeting on it. Oh, okay. Um, so this is yeah. like a phone dating site. It's not yes. like a sex call line. No. Okay. This is dating. This is like one of the dating apps you would download on your phone now, but before we had cell phones type deals. Okay, got it. <laughs> That's, that's the best way I can describe it. Um, it would be like being on black people meet on the phone. Okay. And uh, oh. so you, you're talking to these guys and then you're using that and meeting up with these guys as well. Like nobody's, is anybody asking for ID or they not caring about the ID? <laughs> and there were probably a handful of guys who asked, you know, for ID and asked how old I really was. There were some guys that were like, okay, so shawty, you too, you too young you too young and just kind of sent me about my way but majority of them didn't care can i ask you about these guys are these um like give me an idea are these people who are also in this environment where this is the norm are these people who are coming from outside of the community that you were in because they know that this is available to them so, like, you know, I'm give you an example. Like, are we talking about, like, some old rich person who lives, like, an hour outside of town in the suburbs coming in where they know that this is okay? No, most of them were people who lived in the same neighborhoods. They were literally a few miles away on the phone type 
there was one guy in particular I knew he um, had a family and I remember I was like 16 and I skipped school to go meet up with him and he took me to his house and when I got to his house it was funny it was bills all over the floor and all of his family pictures was on the floor like maybe his significant other knew he was doing some shit he had no business doing and wanted whoever he was with to know it whenever he brought him there it was crazy but um they were mostly people who were in the same environment and were looking at this stuff as, as normal behavior there were some who knew better and you would think would be living a better life but weren't had a secret life did you ever feel like your life was in danger while you were meeting up with these men? Yes, I did. A few times. When I met up with the guy who was in his 40s, that was probably the scariest experience that I ever had. Even during sex, like, I did a lot of the time. Just mm-hmm. feel like my life was in danger. But I don't know. It was a, I don't know if it was an addiction or what that drew me to continue to do it. But I did. Did you have any type of fear of consequences if you didn't do what you were doing? Yeah. Especially once I was in their presence. Mm-hmm. In some, some of the guys' presence. Yeah. So, I mean, but it, it, there was never really a point where you just felt like, all right, I need to stop doing this. I'm going to stop doing this. But, like, if you ever, I don't know. Like, it's just like you said, it, it seemed like it was an addiction. But... No one was getting paid for anything, so we can't say money was the motivation. No, and that's the thing, and that's probably what made it, what made them continue to do it. Because I'm sure there were women on there that they was charging to have sex with them, but these guys were running across a young, naive female who was willing to do some things, and they didn't have to pay for it. Wow. You know what I'm saying? So they was jumping on the opportunity. Did you know anybody your age who was also doing this or did you know any so this was this was really like a normal thing for friends like y'all were doing this i'm not judging i'm just i'm i'm very curious and interested in like how to help people in this situation because again we don't have the information we don't have the resources we don't have and i mean it sounds like there's no there's not even any accountability we're talking about grown men with families we're talking about men we're talking about adults we're talking about people like this is just it's seen as normal for the environment <laughs> yeah um one of the biggest things the most impactful things that could probably be done is to eliminate secrecy especially within the homes because um, having that as like a, a underlying thing within the household, it creates at any point that you want to say anything or you feel like you want to express yourself or anything like that, it, it creates some kind of like barrier around even coming out and saying anything about anything that you're experiencing because you, you feel like you got to keep everything a secret anyway. And that's a lot of secrecy within the black community. And it's not just something that was in my own household. I saw it outside of my house. Like, you know, I saw, I knew things about people, but they weren't supposed to be talking about stuff. I think that if that factor is eliminated, if people were okay with being open and talking about stuff, we could eliminate a lot of stuff that goes on. If people were okay with talking about the fact that something happened to their child, I think a lot of the times when kids experience stuff like that, the parents feel like it may have been their fault. 
they sometimes may feel like they put them in a situation that they shouldn't have put them in or they can feel that shame behind it and they decide that they want to bury it instead of having to address that and then work from there to heal from it to heal them and to heal the kid and all that eliminating the secrecy really and holding these people accountable because if you're keeping this stuff a secret the child never feels comfortable enough to say well this person did this to me this is happening this is happening you're also enabling these people to continue to do what they're doing you know what i'm saying if if you stop that if you nip it in the bud as soon as possible one that person will be held accountable for it other people who feel like they can do it will be afraid to do it because this other person that they know or may not know or they heard about has been held accountable as been such and such has happened to them i think that that's the major part of solving the problem is stopping the secrecy i understand parents and as a parent now i would take that on myself if anything was ever to happen to my daughter i am responsible for her emotional health and helping her develop that emotional health so i'm gonna have to do everything that i can to make sure that if she experiences anything like that i have to do everything that i can to make sure that she can process it and then she can heal from it and all that instead of trying to cover up and hide the shame of it because it wasn't her fault it wasn't my fault. It's the predators. It's nasty men, women, you know, that's doing this stuff to these kids. It's not our fault. It's these people. Maybe it was a lack of judgment on our end, but it's these people that we've allowed our kids to be around. You're in a system. I don't think that there's any one person to point blame at, especially given that this was just seen as normal for whatever reason. And this is the environment. It's a systemic thing. I don't know. One thing that can be done to resolve this, there isn't just one thing. It's like you said, you know, it's systemically. If you re- you lock up one predator, you know, there's still going to be however many other predators there are. Uh, what was it? You said pedophile. Yeah, pedophiles, predators, abusers abuse. And so that cycle continues breaking the cycle with bringing in information. But then, like, you try to bring in information to an unaccepting group of people and they're like no nah, fuck that shit i don't want to hear that shit this is what my life is this is who i am this is what i do so it's, it's systemic i mean the only way i can see fit to really dismantle any type of uh system that enables this kind of behavior is by bringing information into it awareness alone doesn't do shit i hate when people say raise awareness bring awareness too because it requires awareness and inspiring some kind of action even if it's just like bringing in an accountability group or bringing the men in the community together i'm and this is again where i'm asking questions that i'm very hesitant to ask but like i want to know what your father's involvement was because you never mentioned him the last time we talked and then he came up twice since we started talking just now and i'm like where has he been this whole time well my parents divorced and remarried and then divorced again so by the age of like 10 i want to say um he was out of the picture completely we would visit every now and then, but not really much. But they divorced earlier when we were probably, you know what's funny? Now that I think about it, it was probably around the, the times that I, that I was experiencing going through these things. The first time that they divorced was probably when I was around six, somewhere around there. They remarried and weren't married long. Maybe I was maybe like nine-ish. And they didn't stay married long and divorced again. 
the first time that they divorced, we stayed we stayed at our house, and then they remarried. And the second time, we we moved me and my brother, my mom and my brother. From that point, we visited my dad not very often. And then my mom remarried when I was twelve. They've been married since. At twelve was when your mom ended up with someone long term, and this was when. I guess she just accepted this is who you are. I don't know. It, in terms of family, I, we can't say that it was a broken family necessarily because you spent a lot of time with other relatives and it was actually a relative that got you involved with this. So we can't blame it on a broken fatherless household. And then even at 12, when there was a masculine presence in the home, that didn't change anything with your behavior Again, it was just normal. This is just what you were programmed to do. This was what the normal was. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it was. It was normal. And people like to point the finger at a broken household, fatherless household. And I'm, I'm guilty of that, too, for being like, well, we can blame it on there not being wholeness, I guess you would say, in a home. But that's not it. Is it's not. There was the secrecy. The secrecy was probably the most harmful thing here. The silence, the secrecy, the shame, because now, okay, well, this little thing is happening in your small group and it's being kept away from the people who can do something or know to do something or they should be taking some type of action or being involved in your life to know that there's something going on. There are all of these dangling pieces that put together this bigger picture of it really just being the environment. Yep, we slowly, gradually moved outside of the area that we were in. We moved from the inner city to kind of like the outskirts of the inner city, then we moved to the southern parts of the city, and then we moved completely out of Kansas City altogether, and then we came back. So it's kind of like we were taken away from all of that for a brief moment, and then we came back. It didn't really shock me. I, I think around the time that we moved out of Kansas City, I was in high school, and honestly, that was when I was involved the most in volleyball. I started playing volleyball my freshman year of high school, the summer before my freshman year, and I was really involved in volleyball, and I loved it. That also was when I, I mentioned this when we talked last time. There was a guy I liked, and I sent him a picture, and my freshman year, he got that picture, and to this day, I can't say for sure what happened. If he sent it, if somebody else had his phone and saw it and sent it, but it ended up around the school. And of course, I've been doing this for a while. I've been talking to guys. I'm sending pictures. You know, it's, that's normal behavior, but I've never been embarrassed like that. I've never had everybody see my stuff. Everybody that I got to see every day see my see these pictures. That may have caused me to, I don't know spiral a little bit and want to revert back into that and get back into it to try to bury it maybe was it like uh well people already think this about me so i might as well act the part is that what you mean yeah. okay yeah definitely so hold on we skipped ahead a little bit so we talked about the father the family the environment all playing a role in the behavior just being completely normalized and you said um if there was something that I wanted to ask you this, too, but I think you cleared it up when you said the, the eliminating the secrecy. Is that the thing that you feel like would have put your life on a completely different path? Yeah. This was the most impactful thing, the unwillingness to talk about the dysfunction. 
not just dysfunction, things that should be normal, things that should be okay. I really think that if I was allowed to openly discuss with my mom sexuality, what sexuality is, all this different stuff, even if I was already experiencing this stuff with my cousin and she was already doing this stuff to me, it probably could have eliminated a lot of what happened after that point because, you know, I could have had that discussion with my mom and I'm like, could let her know that this has been happening because I was able to openly discuss this stuff with her. When I was young, I'm sure we talked good touch, bad touch stuff. I'm sure we did that stuff. I learned about sex from my cousin. I learned about sex in sex ed. I learned about sex in middle school. I learned about sex when I was talking to these guys. I never had a conversation with her about sex and sex being okay. And a lot of that was surrounded by, in general, being viewed as um, a negative thing outside of marriage. Also, my mom was just very strict all together so when i say secrecy i mean being open about dysfunction but also being open about these other things that happen that should be considered normal that we should be able to talk about because we do it because these things occur and these things happen i just i eliminating secrecy altogether and implementing openness and the ability to share so I, I tried it. Well, that's the thing, though. You're you're not blowing my mind. It's hearing it in such detail. Because, like I said, I, I know this stuff happens, and I feel like maybe my response, my reaction at this point, is just given that I'm in a position to be able to do something about it now, and I recognize it as being dysfunctional, not normal, and fucking illegal. Right. <laughs> so now. You know, it's, I, I guess my brain's working. I, I do this thing and I think it's just like a masculine thing where it's like, all right, how do I solve the problem? And so right. that's where like the, the hesitance is coming from and the, the long pauses and everything like that. So, I mean, without, you know, continuing to do that, that's something that's going to happen um, once I'm legit able to do something. It's just a matter of figuring out what to do and who to bring it to. And I think really that it's a thing that we can like just do like a focus group on and and then just send people out i don't think that's something that can be done i think it starts with the seed it starts with one small group of people who have a different viewpoint you know have experienced certain things and feel differently about what the people around them what their environment is is telling them to to feel they feel something differently altogether. we need to create an environment where those seeds can grow that the process can continue to grow and hopefully it spreads, you know? That's the best that I can come up with myself. I don't think that we can just try to do something with a large group of people. I think it has to start with something genuinely changing and erupting somewhere. I think it has to start small and it just has to grow and it has to, you know, other seeds have to be planted. So it really just needs to start inside out. So it, we got another situation here where we're talking about this being an inside job. So where the survivors, so you, for example, you're someone who has gone through this. You've started your healing process. You're in the healing process. You're seeing a therapist. You're talking to me about this so freely and openly right now. So it would be a matter of maybe you coming. <laughs> hey. <laughs> It'd be a matter of you maybe collaborating with other people of similar circumstances or uh, 
working with even parents or just like community members in the neighborhood or something and just getting together and be like, hey, listen, this happens. And this happens as a result of us doing exactly what we're doing, which is nothing and saying sex is for marriage. Okay, well, what about sex outside of marriage? What does that look like? What are some of these things that we're not supposed to go to the adults about? We're not supposed to talk about these things, but we need to know what it looks like. We don't even know what sex in marriage looks like. We don't have anything to strive for, and the only thing that we have are the experiences of the people who are at a place where they feel as if they can openly talk about this, where they're at a certain point in their healing process to where they can be lighthouses or be representation for the people who are in it and just don't know where to go, don't know that it's not normal, don't know that they have any sort of a safe space to open up and vent without fear of being reprimanded or judged or embarrassed or shamed or anything like that. Yeah, most definitely. I lost my train of thought that quick. I had something dealing with this one. <laughs> I had something too. Um, that fast. That's crazy. It'll come back to me. That's all right. Well, we, we moved on to high school, and I think that um, just this would probably be a good place to start with that conversation uh you were diagnosed with herpes in high school you mentioned that you had anal sex with a male partner and um it you you had the blisters you had a rash uh you felt like you tore your anus and it ended up being uh genital herpes the doctor diagnosed you gave you some information and the medication when you left you told your mom or you and your mom said that y'all just weren't going to talk about this now this is your second time going to get treated for an STI in three years and it's just we're not going to talk about it that was the mindset around it yeah definitely that was another another secret another uh, thing in the closet that we're not that's there but we're not going to talk about um yeah and I'm already feeling like I've had sex had sex quote-unquote with the with the woman with the female I've had sex with multiple partners had an STI already. I got my picture sent around the school. <laughs> a picture of my boobs sent around my, my high school. I feel like trash at this point. Wait, then there's this little beacon of light. I got a boyfriend. I got somebody I think that really likes me. You know, he's taking me to dances, all this stuff. You know, he wants to show me around. And I get herpes. <laughs> he gives me herpes. After giving me herpes, to play volleyball. So my 
my junior year, I also was switched to a different school because of, you know, what was going on. And we were moving. I was told that it was just because we were moving, but I'm sure looking back, it was because of what was going on. The picture um, you mean, right? That resulted in my sophomore year, somebody tried to revamp it and sent out a picture mimicking the picture that I had taken and was like, y'all remember this, like basically trying to bring it back to the light. And I ended up in a fight. We ended up suspended. We thought it was resolved after that. We hated each other from that point <laughs> on, but it was supposed to be over and done with. And then, you know, actually what I think what the reason was we had a merger of schools with our school and went downhill. So that was a part of the reason for the transfer. I'm sorry. No worries. <laughs> we good. So coming from having to transfer schools, just given the circumstances of the picture that was circulating around school, we're talking about the time frame where this person who liked you, they took you out and did all this stuff with you, and then you get diagnosed with herpes, and now this person doesn't want anything to do with you anymore. So at this time, we're 15 years old, so we're talking sophomore, junior year. How was going through high school with genital herpes for you? As far as I've connected with you're the youngest person i know who ended up with a positive herpes diagnosis i wouldn't even know where to begin navigating this in high school after already having been sexually active once my outbreak was going i pretended like it didn't happen so i said the last time we talked about it i was kind of operating on autopilot you know and i just was kind of going through the motions and pretending like everything was normal and you know continuing to go on about it normal quote-unquote life to be quite honest Looking back on everything, I probably was suffering from a lot of emotional problems, probably had a de depression and all kind of stuff, and I really didn't even realize it. Just thinking about it, I probably did have a lot of internalized emotional issues with it that I really didn't express in a healthy way, and I ended up turning around and engaging in a lot of sexual activity again to try to, I guess, bury it all and pretend like it's still just not happening and i'm not disclosing at this point because we're pretending it didn't happen right all that that's pretty much how i navigated through it there's and, nothing more to that and even then did you have anyone tell you okay you have an sti now and you're sexually active you have to disclose this information no nothing. <laughs> no i don't and i'm laughing because i remember a couple of years ago going to my mom because she's the only person that knows she me and him we are the only three that know about this. I remember going to my mom and like wondering if she was just so disappointed in me because I continued to have sex and all this. And she told me that she thought I was disclosing. Now, just thinking about it, I'm like, how did you expect? I don't. I didn't even know how to deal with this shit. This shit. How are you expecting me to even be thinking about the person who gave it to me? Didn't even disclose to me. <laughs> like the patterns that I'm, I'm seeing laid out in front of me. How how could you have expected that from me? And was there any guilt at all, or was there any shame around yeah. not disclosing? Definitely, definitely. There was a lot of guilt. Uh, switch schools, move schools. I don't know if that had anything to do with it or not. But my junior year, I skipped school probably my whole second semester while there. Meeting up with, there were two guys in particular that I can remember that I would meet up with. Older guys. Um, one of them was another 40-something. They was 
spending money on me at this time. I remember coming home with gifts and getting in trouble. And my daddy took my gifts and did stuff like my mama told my daddy and took the stuff that I was getting and, and like, I don't know what he did with it, threw them away or something. I get to the new school and skip school that whole second semester, senior year. I started getting involved, but I wasn't really dealing with guys at this point. There was one guy that I ended up liking and I started getting involved with him. Like he never penetrated me. We didn't have sex like that. That, that resulted in oral sex. We, I was giving him fellatio majority of the time. Another me being a little impressionable, um, thinking this guy liked me. <laughs> um, and that was pretty much, it actually the guilt really probably didn't set in for real until I moved on to college. When I went to college, I was aware of what was going on with me. Question. When you went yes. off to college, did you go away from home? Were you away mm -hmm. from your environment? Okay. Yes, yes. And I went a little crazy. I started smoking weed. and. You didn't smoke weed or drink before? Another wild assumption out there that, oh, it's because of drugs, it's because of alcohol, and that they're doing all this stuff. And that wasn't even the case with you. This nope. was just, nope. this is just you representing a community, uh, an environment, I'm sorry. And there was no drugs, there was no alcohol. This is just normal without that, like, even being involved. And yeah. you get to college, and now you're experimenting with drugs, and now you're drinking, and... Now you're beginning to challenge that, the norm. Yeah. Funny thing is, of course, people were assuming, my mom in particular was assuming that I was already smoking weed and doing drugs, but I wasn't while I was in high school. But I wasn't. Well, maybe if she talked to you, she would have known that. Right. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, so I get to college and I get into drugs. I get to partying, doing all this stuff. My I'm letting loose my inhibitions. I'm, I'm, I'm getting attention. <laughs> And, of course, it's starting to come to me like, ah, I'm getting all this attention and guys are talking to me. I'm there, you know, asking, you know, if I want to move forward, do we have sex, all this stuff. And I had sex with a couple guys and didn't let them know. And it was haunting me after that. I did this with these guys and I did not tell them. Nobody has come. I, I know I was having protective sex with, with most of them, but I didn't know for sure if i was uneducated completely about how to even how somebody could contract it for the longest i was thinking it was through fluids and I, I like i didn't know you know if it was coming from if i had to have an outbreak in order to give it to somebody i didn't know i didn't have any real knowledge about living with it i didn't know i dropped out of college my freshman year Second semester of my freshman year, I drop out. I start living a life on my own. I was dealing with a guy back home who was a friend of the family, quote unquote, who would come and see me. And, you know, I would go home and see him. We were doing this thing. It wasn't a relationship, but we, it was a, a thing. And I wasn't letting him know. And that was one of the things that was really getting to me. I didn't discuss this with you, but I remember I came home that summer and he would take me out. I was under the age of 21, so I wasn't legally allowed to go into clubs and stuff like that, but he would take me out. And I remember one night he took me out with him and his cousin. He and him and his cousin took me 
out together. I was under the impression that he was going, the cousin was going to pick up some girl or, you know, that he was going to do his own thing. We went and got a room and we all three ended up in a room together. So that went down. And from that point, I decided I was just not going to tell him. I was just like, fuck it. You know, y'all did that to me. I'm not telling y'all shit. I have to ask you this. Is this an assault? Was this coerced? Was there any kind of conversation at all around this about consent? This was just normal. This was expected. I didn't get down like that. I wasn't having threesomes with people and all that. I was promiscuous. I was having sex. I was having a lot of sex. But it wasn't assault. It wasn't assault. It wasn't something that I wanted to do. Okay. But there's no but to it. In my head, I felt like I deserved it because I wasn't disclosing. I ended up pregnant later on by him and lost the baby. And I kind of slowed down from that point. And then I ended up in a relationship with my daughter's father. So I met him and we were kind of on and off for a while. I ended up in a relationship and our situation transpired from mm. that point. You have a child. How old is she? She's nine months. Nine months and so active and vocal and talking. You didn't have any issues with herpes and having your child, did you? I did not. Good. People think that if you have genital herpes, you have to have a C-section or you can't have a baby without the baby contracting herpes. I don't know. Did they test your baby for HSV after birth? They did, and she's negative for it. Okay. I did not give birth to her vaginally. I ended up having to have a C-section, but it had nothing to do with having HSV. I was diagnosed with preeclampsia in my 36th week of pregnancy, which is high blood pressure, dangerously high blood pressure to the point where they were anticipating me having a stroke or a seizure. So they had me on medication for 48 hours and tried to induce me and I wouldn't induce, I wouldn't dilate. So they gave me the option to do a C-section and I was worried about her being okay. So I decided to get a C-section. How are you right now? I'm taking everything day by day, honestly. I feel like I'm in a much healthier space than I ever have been. <laughs> Probably since I was a little a little kid running around with no worries in the world. I don't um, know. I feel like you became an adult pretty early. I know, right? Hey, I don't even think you had time to really run around. You know, six years. <laughs> But um, I'm talking to a guy. He knows. I've, I've been really adamant for the past couple of years about disclosing to people. Um, he knows. He's pretty accepting of it. I don't know where it's going to go. I'm honestly not really worried about a relationship. I'm really worried about just being healthy emotionally, mentally, physically healthy, making sure this little baby girl over here, this... <laughs> This siren <laughs> is healthy, <laughs> creating a, an environment for her to... She off to a great start. She already got her podcast debut at nine months. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you also mentioned on the last one, we didn't get to cover this, but we talked about um, how you really haven't been sexually active, I guess, since you, your See? daughter was conceived. So from that period on, were you just not turned on? What was it? traumatic experience that I've ever experienced with my daughter's father. And it 
shook me to a point to where, you know, it's hard for me to really trust, which, you know, everything else, but it's hard for me to really trust guys. Not even trust guys, but trust myself in a relationship. We're talking about the father of your child who's running around right now. At 25 years old, after everything you've been through, the most traumatic event of all of this in your perspective in seeing therapy and going through the healing process was the relationship with the father of your child yeah yes he was very um before physically becoming physically abusive he was very emotionally abusive very manipulative (laughs) i actually talked about this to you a while when we first started talking about it but i didn't even find out until later on he made me doubt my own sanity that's the type of situation I had with him he made me doubt my reality being in a relationship with him he was very controlling and um we talked about this too but I'm gonna say it I'm convinced that the man trapped me I ain't even gonna lie that he got me pregnant on purpose I'm not even gonna lie I'm convinced because the, the timing of everything just lined up too well we lived around the corner from each other I was in a position where I was moving and I was about to start another life. And then after years of us dealing with each other, I pop up pregnant. And, you know, we never had this problem prior. We Or we never, you know, had to deal with that prior. But while I was pregnant, he physically assaulted me. I went to his house upset, horny and upset because he was ignoring me. <laughs> I'm a pregnant woman who's hormonal and I'm horny and you're ignoring me. So I went over to his house and we were arguing. And as I'm trying to leave after we argued, he he first grabbed me by my hair and was like yanking me by my hair into the house. For what reason, I don't know. Prior to this, escorted me off of his property. I snatched my arm from him and told him I didn't need to escort me. It turned into him trying to pull me into the house by my hair and then flip me around some kind of way and put me in a headlock and was trying to drag me in the house in a headlock. I slipped out of it. I don't know if he loosened his grip or what, but I had my phone in my hand and I had Siri. I was like, you know, asking Siri to call my mom. And he realized what I was doing and I think he tried to get my phone and maybe loosened his grip while trying to get my phone and I was able to slip from underneath it, his arm. And I ran, I was running up the street, I slipped out of everything, I had my glasses on, and I had on slides, and I ran out of my shoes, and um, I didn't have my glasses, I couldn't see nothing, it was the middle of the night. The only reason I was able to leave that day was because the neighbors were sitting outside in the truck, and they seen me running. And so he came out, like his house is the last house on the block, and at night you can't, you can't see shit, you can't see anything. So he came out and he was throwing my stuff in the street and threw my glasses in front of me. I'm yelling down the street, like, can I leave? Can I leave? Don't let me leave. And um, he threw all my stuff out but my phone. And he wouldn't give me my phone and he was like threatening to, he was running in the house. I was assuming to go get a gun because he owns a gun. Can you repeat that last part? Yeah, he went in the house. It was like threatening, like if I don't leave, 
type of stuff. And I was assuming that he was going to get his gun. He had a gun. He owned a gun. And I knew he owned a gun. And I was assuming that he was going in the house to go get his gun. So I um, was asking to asking him to give me my phone back. But because he was threatening or making it seem like he was threatening to shoot me, I just left. I pulled off and left. I ended up getting my phone back later on. But that was the, the experience I had with him. Initially, he ended up stalking me. When I moved in with my mom, he didn't know where I was. I assumed he didn't know where I was, but he found me. And he he was pulling up to my mama's house and threatening me at my mom's. All while I was pregnant. So, yeah. That's, that was my experience with my dark story. So it was really hard for me to even want to have relations with anybody and be with anybody yeah. after experience like that. <laughs> so after so much male attention or I, I don't know what we would call it I don't I guess these were a form of relationships after so many sexual encounters I guess with various people nothing hurt you more than letting your guard down trusting someone I'm sure you loved him at some point and you allowed him in you gave him power to hurt you more than you've given anyone else power to do so yeah, definitely okay What was different about this relationship? I was extremely open and extremely honest. What drew me to him was what I thought was brutal honesty in the beginning. From him on his end. I told you he was very manipulative and, you know, all that. And he would say things to me that would seem like it was constructive criticism or, you know, him calling me out on stuff. And I appreciated it. Because I felt like nobody had done that for me before. Nobody was ever honest enough to be like, hey, you know, you ain't right. That's how I felt about it. So that was what really drew me in and allowed me to be very open with him and let me in. And now, I don't care who knows anything. <laughs> I don't care. I, I don't care if you know anything. I'm open to sharing my whole life, I would write a book if I could. I mean, you can do anything. You can do anything you want to. And, um, I don't even know how to end this. Oh, <laughs> uh, thank you more than anything. Just thank you, thank you for for telling us that, for telling us everything. I mean, I know it may not have gone in like the smooth flow. It was definitely better than the first time we tried this, <laughs> and even some other stuff came up. I know we left out some things that may have not even really been relevant. So I just, I, I thank you. And hopefully this is some sort of a catalyst to create some sort of change, man. Because clearly the there's a disconnect between the people who believe abstinence, sex ed helps. And we're looking at the damage that's being done. That shit doesn't work in certain environments. In fact, that type of belief, that behavior... The education there is what's perpetuating their secrecy because it's like, don't have sex till you're married. All right, well, what about everything that leads up to that? What happens after you're married? What about the stuff that we haven't yet talked about? All right, so that episode ended abruptly because we got cut off. We were disconnected, which this never happens before. So I'm thinking maybe Z's phone might have died. 
But we concluded the episode. That was the end of it. And I thank you for taking care of yourself. I thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast episode. Like I said, it's important. The 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 secrecy, the shame, and all of that really contributes to this. And for people who think that STI diagnoses or um, sexual trauma doesn't look different for marginalized groups, you you I'm hoping that you really listen to this episode because this is a real experience. This stuff happens. This stuff is going on even as we speak, and there's no one calling it out. There's no one who's in it who sees this as a problem. It's just normal to some people, and I don't have the answer to what we can do. I have a an answer, a answer. I have an answer for what can be done, and that's really we got to break these cycles. We got to break these generational cycles. And it starts with us. When we recognize dysfunction, we cannot allow ourselves to just continue to normalize it. And this branches out way further than just being about herpes or just being about sex. Like we're talking about complete dysfunction and people being a product of their environment. So once we're at a space of being able to realize that for ourselves, especially being in these communities, like it becomes an inside out job. It becomes an inside job and we work our way, we work, our, we work ourselves outward um, by calling out the dysfunction, by being a safe space for people to also share their experiences and being willing and able to hold people accountable. There's no reason that some of the experiences that Z's shared in this podcast episode should be going on. There's none especially now where we have so much access to information. Uh, we can get the truth behind things. We've got the internet. We've got instant access to information and education and resources. So silencing and saying we're not going to talk about it in this house, those kinds of things are completely shutting us off from being able to heal, from being able to uh in the cycles of dysfunction that occur in certain environments, in certain communities, and even in households. So I hope that this opens your mind or encourages you to share with someone who may be perpetuating this kind of mindset because it's damaging. It does far more damage than it does good. And honestly, I can't even think of a situation where it does do any good. Till next time. Stay sex positive.